We're going to start reading Ecclesiastes chapter 3 in verse 16. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. And I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every purpose and for every work. And I said in my heart concerning the state of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they all have one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above the beast for all his vanity. <coughs> all go unto one place. All are of the dust, and turn to dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better that a man should rejoice in his own work, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall come after him? So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of such as were oppressed. And they had no comforter, and on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the sun, seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again, I considered all travail and every right work, for that this is a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, there is not a second. Yea, he that neither hath, hath neither child nor brother, Yet is there no end of all of his labor, neither is his eye satisfied with riches, neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity. Yea, a sore travail. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe unto him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat, but how can one be warm alone? If one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a three-cord or threefold cord is not quickly broken. <coughs> Better is a poor and wise child than an old foolish king who will no more be admonished. For out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also... He that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. <clears throat> I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. There is no end of all the people. Even of all that have been before them, 
They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Cable news and talk radio and news organizations have to have something to talk about. You don't turn on the news or listen to the radio program and they say, well, not much happened today, so uh, life is pretty good. You'll never hear that um, on one of those programs. No, you'll turn in and they'll say, this tragedy happened and this bad thing happened and, and these people are doing these things wrong. And depending on who you listen to, you'll get a different idea of what disaster is looming and, and who to be uh, afraid of and what's coming around the next corner. Well, tonight, we're going to turn on the news, so to speak, and we're going to see that life is hard under the sun. As I was thinking about this, I, I thought, well, this is just like a, a, news, a news segment, an hour-long news show. we got the top six stories of the night, and every one of them is bad. And, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to look through um, the news of the world and see that life is hard under the sun. And so we got six segments tonight, or six stories that we're going to look at. Uh, six uh, in problems here in the world. And consider what the Bible is teaching us about these scenarios, because these are things that are not uncommon. It's not some strange thing that is just happening, but, but it's something that has always happened and always will happen until the Lord comes back. Well, the first story we see tonight is there is injustice in the world. Verses 16 and 17. There is injustice. There's injustice where there shouldn't be injustice. Um, he saw under the sun the place of judgment. Wickedness was there. In the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. So this is probably talking about the courts or, or the place where decisions were made. The place of judgment, the place of, uh, of righteousness. The place where you go when someone does you wrong and you can't work it out on your own. And it goes to the judge. And you say, well, I'm going to the place of judgment. There I'll get a fair shake. And you go before the judge and you, you, you plead your case that your, your neighbor has done you wrong and you look and you find out the judge plays golf at the same place as your opponent. And you find out that they're really kind of close buddies. And all of a sudden the case goes away and in the place of judgment there's wickedness. There's not justice. There's injustice. That, that they have not done you right according to what is true, but they have done you wrong according to that which is wicked. Then you have also the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there as well. You know, the church is the house of God. It should be a place of righteousness. But sometimes a person can go to the house of God, the place where righteousness ought to be, and there you can get hurt the most. I don't deny that, that people are hurt um, in churches. I don't deny that that there is uh, iniquity and wickedness and, and, and unrighteousness even in the house of God. We are all, uh, church member, churches are made up of saved, in, or saved sinners. And there indeed is sin where there ought not to be. Gavin Ortland said, there is no church like church, or there's no hurt like church hurt. 
And that's true. The place where you come to worship the Lord, to be helped, to be instructed, to pour your heart out into other people and to be helped and cared for by other people than to be turned around and perhaps betrayed or sinned against. Well, that can be crushing. There is no hurt like church hurt. And so he looked around and saw in the place where there should be righteousness, there should be justice, there should be um, right deeds, there was injustice. Orlin went on to say, but the church is also where many wounds have been healed. Churches have incredible power both to damage and to bless. Oh, for more churches are the places of refuge for the broken. But Solomon looked around and said, there is injustice in the world and ought not to be like that. He said, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every purpose and for every work. So what do you think about that? So the first story, it says, there's injustice. People are doing bad things. People are in positions of power or using their power to abuse people. People who should be doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing to take advantage of people. So the commentator comes along in our new segment and tells us that there's a time for every purpose and every work, even bad things, even injustice. There's a reason for suffering for God's people. Being treated unfairly by people who ought to treat you fairly is the worst sort of pain. Being treated unrighteously in the place of righteousness is tragic. Finding iniquity in the court of law when you should find uh, justice or finding sin in the house of righteousness is heartbreaking, but it is part of the way this broken world works. But know that just because life is unfair, it doesn't mean it all gets washed under the rug. God has a purpose in this. And I know that even in, I know in my life, and you can testify to this, I know that times of injustice and times of great hurt can leave a scar on you. But that scar will shape you one way or the other. And, and God can use that in your sanctification to draw you closer to him. And he can use that in your sanctification to, to rely upon him and not put your hope and your trust in men and, and people in the sense that they will bring you ultimate satisfaction. But you say that you can see that it is God that will never leave nor forsake you and that, that even in sorrow and injustice, God has a purpose for that. God will ultimately set things right. He is the judge. He will punish the wicked. He will reward the tried saint. He will use even the wickedness of unjust men uh, to sanctify his people and make his people closer to him. And even in, when, in the house of the righteous, when Christians sin against each other, sin is judged in the person of Christ. And so our injustice is towards our other brethren or our brethren's sins against us has been dealt with. And so God has a purpose in all things. So you look around the world, there's injustice. There's people doing bad things. The answer is not to say this world is crooked, we might as well be crooked too. The answer is not to 
fight fire with fire. The answer is not to say, well, if they're going to cheat, we got to cheat better and faster. But the answer is to look to God who judges and to know that there is a purpose and trust in the plan and the purpose of God. Well, we move on to our next uh, segment that after injustice, we look around. The preacher looked around, starting in verse 18, at men, and noticed something that's in common for everybody. The judges in the place of the judgment are those who are getting messed over, the people who are taking advantage and those who are being taken advantage of. And not only them, but uh, the animals out in the field. And maybe he was looking around and said, you know, people treat each other so poorly, so unjustly. No different than a bunch of animals. Well, he, he stops and considers and says, in some sense, we are no different than a bunch of animals. In the sense that we're all going to die. So the wealthy and powerful man who lives his life in, in a mansion while the cattle are out in the field chewing the cud. Both breathe the same air. Both live in their place. Both are going to die and return to dust. The curse has brought death. And that's the man and beast of life. That's what it says in Genesis 3 and 19. That's part of this curse. He told Adam that in verse 19, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return to the ground. For out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. So Solomon's looking at all the people that are treating each other poorly, and you've got some people who are rich and some are poor, some have power, some who don't, some are oppressed and some aren't. This beastly sinfulness. And then he looks around and sees the animals out in the field and says, well, they're going to die too. That is the curse that, that we are under. That we are dust. The result of sin. Our, our federal head, our, our covenant head, Adam, our representative, went out and sinned. And the wages of sin is death. And the world is now cursed. And so all the problems that we have are a result of that curse. And we are creatures made from the dust of this earth. And one of these days, dust, we will return. We feel so high and mighty and powerful and, and, and all that, but we're just dust. We're just dirt. And one of these days, we're going to die this body is just going to deteriorate. It's going to go back into the dust. <clears throat> I went with somebody one time to, to help them at the funeral home. Their, their loved one had passed. And the person there was trying to upsell them and, and all this stuff with the funeral. And he said, well, this, this casket is made of this material. and This will keep moisture out. And and this vault is made of this material, and this will preserve this way and this way. And just, you know, trying to nickel and dime the poor person. But I was thinking, it doesn't matter what kind of casket you get. 
And it doesn't how ma matter how tight you get the seal on that vault. It doesn't matter even what kind of chemicals you pump in the body. We dust, and to dust we will return. And that's Solomon's point. That we are going to die. And then you read that, and, and you keep on reading, and it almost seems like Solomon is saying, well, what even, what's even the point? We all just go to one place, we're all dust, and who knows where the spirit of man goes up, or the beast goes down, who knows? Well, yes, Solomon knows that there's life after death. He, he's not saying that. He's, he's making a point here that he's looking around. Human beings have souls. You have a soul. When you die, you don't disappear. There's no mystery of what happens. The scripture tells us what happens. Those in Christ will go to be with Christ. The second you die, if you're in Christ, the second you die, your soul was safe with him. All your pain and sorrow under the sun is all over with. You were safe with him. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You are with him. Your journey is over. Your struggles are over. Your, your trials are over. Your pain is over. Those without Christ, the moment they die, they lift up their eyes in hell. They lift up their eyes in torments, in outer darkness, forever separated from God, forever separated from any goodness, from any peace, from any godliness, and in torments without end, forever and ever. So that's what happens when you die, one of those two things. You're either at peace with, in Christ because you've trusted in him and he's paid for your sins and there is no more condemnation. You belong to him, you're united to him, and you die, you're not separated. You're separated from your body, but not from Christ. And so by putting your faith in Christ, you have everlasting life. So if you trust in Christ, if you are trusting in Christ right now, you are in Christ, and you have everlasting life. And when, when this body dies, you go to be with him. You are united to him, and you're not going to be separated from him. But if you're without Christ, you're all alone. You're on your own. And you die, and you're going to go out into eternity alone. You're going to go to the flames alone, into darkness alone. So Solomon's point here is that we're all going to die. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much money that you have or where you live, if you're good or if you're bad. <clears throat> if you are a millionaire in a big homestead or if you're the cow that's out in his homestead in the field, all creatures created by God because of sin are going to die. And those dead bodies that we value so much are going to go to the dust. And you and I who remain see this and we can hope and we can pray and we can trust but ultimately we just got to leave these things in the hands of God. I've walked away from many, many grave uh, sites not knowing, not having much hope, not knowing, just all I could say is, is what's in the Lord's hands. I don't know. I know what they said, and I know how they lived, and I, I just don't know. And I think that's the point Solomon is making, that, that as you and I, who are still living on this earth, look around, everyone is going to die. 
He's reminding us, you are going to die. Are you ready? Are you ready tonight? You might leave this world tonight. What would happen if you did? Do you have any grounds for what you think will happen to you, or are you just hoping for the best? Well, I can tell you if you receive Christ, you don't have anything to worry about because Jesus lived the perfect life under the sun. He didn't fail. He didn't fall into temptation. He was not under the curse, but he, he became the curse for us and paid the sin debt that we owe and purchased our pardon and gave us eternal life. And so, yes, we die. If you're in Christ, you don't have anything to fear. Fear sells. That's why uh, every news segment is trying to scare you about something or someone. Well, death is coming. That's, that's pretty fearful. Injustice is bad. That's, that's fearful. Death is fearful. Well, Christ will set things right. And de- Christ has overcome death. And for those who do, how do you wrestle with this truth? How do you look at a world that's full of death and wrong and sadness and heartbreak? You just walk away? Do we just become cynical and, and pessimistic and, and downtrodden? Well, no. Verse 22 tells us, Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? We should rejoice in the portion that God has given us. Be thankful for what we have while we have it. Enjoy today's blessings today. Enjoy what God has given you today because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know if there will be a tomorrow. We had a nice day of sunshine. We're all here tonight in the house of God. There might be a ton of stuff going on tomorrow. We might have all kinds of trials we're going to have to deal with tomorrow, but you don't have to deal with them right now. We can rejoice in Christ right now. We can rest in Christ under the preached word right now. We can pray together and sing together. We can rest in the salvation we have in Christ and enjoy the gift that we have in him. The thing that we're worried about tomorrow might not even happen. That, that is the point here. Not just to, to go on and just live it up because nothing matters. No, the point is this world is broken. And we should be thankful for every gift of common grace that the Lord has bestowed upon us. Because everything that we have is the portion that God has for us. And we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. It could be more joy. Could be a lot more heartache. We don't know here under the sun. Solomon says, be thankful and be content. Be joyful in what God has given you. Because life under the sun can change in an instant. Well, the next segment of our story of, of bad news here under the sun is oppression. Starting in chapter number four. So he goes and he considers the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such who were oppressed, they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no comforter. So one thing in Hebrew poetry is you read 
you look for um, thing repetitions. And so, what's some repetitions that we've seen in Ecclesiastes so far? Well, under the sun, he says that a bunch. Vanity and vexation, he says that a bunch. Here, tonight, we've seen that he says, I return, verse number one, and then verse number seven. So that tells you, you know, he's starting something new there, a new, a new idea. But whenever he re- repeats something, that gives you an idea, oh, well, this must be important, because he, he's repeating the same words in this, in this speech. So he's talking about, there's no comforter for the, those who are oppressed. So here you've got a people, Solomon, the preacher, steps back and looks at the world again. There's just so much oppression. So many people bearing the weight of unreasonable burdens. So many suffering the cruelty of someone who is stronger than they are and has power over them and just stepping on their, their throat, crushing them. Hardship and misery and misfortune on every side. And the preacher looked out at the oppressed and he saw their tears. He saw them weeping and there's just no comforter. The oppressors, well, they have power. Who can stop them? Who can confront them? Who do the oppressed have? Well, they don't even have anybody to comfort them, Solomon said. And it broke his heart. And he said, you'd just be better off being dead. He said, no, I'll take that back. You'd be better off not to ever be born. And to be oppressed and crushed and just have no one to come alongside and comfort. Thinking of the time that Solomon wrote this, we can say he can, he's either a cynic or maybe he's like Simeon. Simeon, in Luke chapter 2, was a man in Jerusalem. He was a just and devout man. And it says in verse 25 of Luke 2, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the comfort of Israel. Because Simeon looked around and saw God's people They're back in Jerusalem. Herod was building the temple. It was a beautiful temple. But things weren't as they should have been. He was a just and devout man, so he saw things weren't like they should be. Herod, Herod, rather, Herod, King Herod was not the king that Israel should have had, that Judah should have had. He, He shouldn't have been the king in Jerusalem. The priests weren't the priests that they should have had. The prophets had been gone for a long time. And so poor Simeon looked around and saw the brokenhearted. He saw the oppressed under the weight of legalism and under the weight of a law that they couldn't keep, under the weight of religion that couldn't save him. And he longed for the consolation of Israel. Well, when the Lord Jesus came... Um, the young child, it says in chapter, or verse 29 of Luke 2, Lord, this is what the Simeon said, Lord, let, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. 
The Lord Jesus had come. The comforter. The consolation of Israel. The comfort had come. And we now know in the new covenant that we have the blessings of the comforter. Not just to the Jewish people, but to all who trust in Christ. The comforter has come. Christ said that he, it was beneficial, that needful, that we go. Advantageous that he go back to the Father because then the comforter would come. And we have the comforter indwelling us. We have the comforter. The Holy Spirit. And so, as Solomon looked at the oppressed, and he said, they'd be better off not even being born than to live in this life without a comforter. To live a life under the sun with, with no one to come and console and, and to help and, and to pray for you and be with you. We can say by the, with, with great glory to God, the comforter has come. So when you are oppressed, when you are burdened, when you are suffering under some cruelty, you're not like those who have no comforter. You're not like the people that Psalms that would have been better off not even to be born, for you have the comforter. You have one to come alongside. The blessed Holy Spirit indwells you. The Spirit of God um, is there to, to guide you and to lift you up and to point you to Jesus Christ, the, the consolation of Israel, your beloved Savior. So that segment looked at the oppressed of the world and how awful it is. We can say, thank God we have a comforter. Thank God that God's people are not the oppressed that have no comforter. Well, now that we have a comforter, we say, well, now we can go back and live our lives and, and go to work and enjoy what God has given us. And then we can just have satisfaction in our day-to-day -day life. Well, verse 4 again, I considered all the travail and every right work that for this, a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth of his own flesh, and betters a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Well, the preacher thought about it, work, and what it takes, and what it gives back. And he says there's travail and toil that goes into any good work. No matter, what, no matter what it is, it takes effort and it takes hard work. Whether it's mental work or physical work, it takes a toll on you. And it doesn't matter what kind of work that you do, it'll take a toll on you. Um, I know a manual labor job takes a toll on your body. And, you, and sometimes people work manual labor or look in the office and say, boy, what I wouldn't give to work inside that office and sit in that office all day in that, in that air conditioning. And then I guarantee there's somebody in that office sitting in there looking out the window and saying, oh, what I wouldn't give to be outside, out from under these fluorescent lights and be able to stand up so my back doesn't hurt just sitting here in front of that computer all day. Right? The, no matter what it is, I can promise you somebody else is looking at you, envying that work, saying, well, you got it made. But the fact is, work is hard no matter what you do. It takes, it takes it out of you. 
Solomon looked at the good work and the right work and says it's travail. It's, it's, it, it, it just takes everything out of you. It's, it's laborious. It, it, it's, it's difficult because of the curse. Not only that, good work takes a lot of skill. And skill takes a lot of practice. There's very few people on earth that can do something quote-unquote naturally. And even those who can do things naturally only excel by honing their technique. Right? So even think about Michael Jordan, probably the greatest basketball player that's ever lived, in my opinion. He probably worked harder than any other basketball player that's ever lived. His work ethic was beyond the pale. Yes, he had God-given abilities, but if he hadn't worked like he did and practiced like he did and put the time in like he did, those natural skills that he was born with would have meant nothing. Uh, Jason Williams, the ball player from, from around here, um, played in the NBA. I saw a story with him talking about whenever he was in high school and the hours and the hours and the hours he put into dribbling and, and passing the ball against the, the side of the wall and and the countless hours that he put in practicing, honing his skill. So Solomon looks and says, everything that you do is either takes it all out of you, and then the skill that you have to develop that takes practice and work, and, and to be good takes practice, and then the, the work itself is hard work. And for all that, what do you get? People envy you. People aren't exactly praised, that's what he says, they're not congratulated. It's not that now you have everything you want. No, people, people envy you. He's envied of his neighbor. And so people see how great someone is, and they say, well, I want that. I'm going to take that from him. And so he's hated, he's despised. Solomon said this is vanity. Someone's real hungry for success. They want to succeed and they look to somebody and they, they pattern themselves after them so they can succeed and they get better and they get better. And so they get better to do what? To take his place. Because they become envious and jealous. Then they hate you for what you've become. Not because of what you've done to them, but because you have what they want. And Solomon says, so even if you excel and you become the best at whatever it is that you do, it's vanity and vexation of spirit. Well, what's the answer? Be lazy and just drift through life? Because work and success and skill make people hate you and envy you? No, because the, the, the lazy man's a fool. So we find there that the fool in verse 5 folds his hands together and eats his own flesh. All he wants to do is sit at home and do nothing. He makes a hand's sandwich here. He folds his hands together and eats his own flesh. Why? Because he's worked for nothing, he has nothing, and his laziness has, he's devouring himself. So he folds his hands together, eats his hands. He's eating himself. He, he's consuming himself because he's living for himself, and that's what his laziness does. It's devouring him. It's destroying him. You destroy your life and the people who rely on you. So the answer to uh, envy is not to be lazy. But on the flip side, the answer is not to be 
um, a workaholic, as people might call it. This man gets angry at the lazy bums because he wakes up early and works and works and works and works and works. And, but he's working to get that next promotion so he can get the more money, so he can get the next promotion, so he can get the more money. But, the, but Solomon says that's nothing but travail and anxiety and vexation. Well, what's the answer? Verse 6 tells us, Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. So verse 5 is the fool who's lazy. The end of verse 6 is the guy that lives for his job. And neither one of them's happy. Neither one of them has everything. Because the man that lives only for his job and what he can get has his hands full, but it's full of vexation. The fool has his hands empty and he's devouring his own flesh. So what Solomon say the answer is? Not to grind yourself into oblivion or to be lazy, but, but to be content with what God has given you. And not to be driven by envy to a measure of success that's set by people who don't care whether you live or die. The people who make commercials don't care if you live or die. They just want you to buy their product. You won't be happy till you have this new cell phone, and then you get it, and a year later, oh, you won't be happy till you have the next cell phone. Then you'll be happy. You won't be happy till you have the one after that, and so on, and it never ends. Better is a handful with quietness, Solomon says. That's just being content. Being content with what you have. Being content with what God has given you. So, Solomon says, work hard. Excel at what you do. And be happy in what God has given you and enjoy what you have. Don't waste what you have right now by longing for what tomorrow might bring. Don't waste what you have. Because if you're not content, you're not happy with what, if you're, if you're murmuring and discontent in your heart, you're not happy with what you have now because you're not happy with what you don't have and might not ever get. Solomon says, enjoy what you have. Well, the next uh, new segment is loneliness. There's one alone and there's a second he has neither child nor brother. There's no end of all of his labor. His eye is satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor and breathe my soul of good? This is vanity and torture veil. So the preacher looks around and sees even more vanity. He sees one all by himself. He's worked his whole life and focused all that he has on what he can get. And now he's sitting in his big house with a nice car and a nice big truck, all the latest gadgets. He travels the world, has a summer home at the beach. And he sits in that big empty house and looks at all the stuff and says, what am I doing this for? Why do I kill myself for all this? Because it doesn't even satisfy me. I don't even enjoy it. And then when I die, who's going to get it? You know, there's a lot of men who get to middle age and they think, 
Well, I've been working my whole life, and what do I have for myself? Nothing. And so they leave their wife and their kids, and they go off on their own so they can enjoy their life. And you know what ends up happening? Whether they can admit it or not, they'll sit in that big, nice house that they got, and most times the little apartment that they've got, and it's all they'll enjoy their freedom for a little while, and they'll sit there and then say, oh, I'm all alone. What was the point of all this? What was the point? <clears throat> like Merle Haggard said, sometimes I think about leaving, doing a real bumming around, throwing my bills out the window, catch a train to another town. That's what he was thinking. Boy, it'd be nice not have to pay these bills and work all day and, and all that kind of stuff. But he said, no, I'll go back working. I'll buy my kid a brand new pair of shoes. No, there's no point in that. What good would that do? Go off by myself. Then I'd be all alone. Then what I'd have, yeah, I'd, I'd have a little fun for a little while, but it's no good. If all I ever work for is to get things for myself, then I'm going to be disappointed. Well, because two are better than one, he says. They can help each other. Two are better than one. And that was his point. Two are better than one, and they have good reward for their labor. If one falls, the other one will pick him up. If two lie together, they have heat. If one, if you're alone, how can you warm yourself? A three-fold cord is not quickly broken. We went to South Dakota and we stopped at an Old West attraction. It was a place from uh, Dances with Wolves. And they had items that were in that movie. And, uh, but the main reason we stopped is I saw a pamphlet, or maybe it was a thing on the side of the road that said, all you can eat pancakes for a dollar. And I thought, well, you know, you can't really beat that. Uh, Four hungry boys, all you can eat for a dollar. So we went, we ate all we could eat, the pancakes, and we, we were walking in this uh, room that had a bunch of rope, and the older man asked us, he said, uh, what made you guys stop and come here? And then he looked at me and said, it's probably the pancakes, wasn't it? And I said, okay. But he, he was joking with me a little bit, but it was true, it was the pancakes. And he said... Actually, the guy owned the place, and uh, he had made his fortune in his life, um, but it was empty. And he told how the Lord had saved him. And he, he told us about his salvation story, how the Lord saved him. And now he, um, he built that attraction, brings people in, likes to tell people about Jesus. And while he was telling us all this, he was making rope. But he was making it out of toilet paper, just regular toilet paper. And he would take the strands of toilet paper and put it in this contraption and he'd twist it. And he'd take another piece and twist it and twist it and braid it and, and so forth. And you had what started out with just a piece of toilet paper that an infant could tear. He wound it up into a rope that I could grab hold of and pull with all my might and it wouldn't break it. The point here is that we are not meant to live by ourselves. We're not to be meant to live on islands by ourselves. We're meant to live for other people, to be in a community. If you live by for yourself and yourself only, you're going to be miserable. But that three-fold cord can't be broken. It, you will be happy. You will be blessed. You will be protected. You will be helped by not focusing on yourself, but focusing on other people. 
That's the way it works. And that's the way God has ordained it. We think if we live for ourselves, that's how we'll get satisfaction because we want to be satisfied. But in reality, it's living in a community of people, loving one another, helping one another is how we'll be, be blessed. Well, lastly, the last segment is politics. And you can't have a news story without politics. But there, starting verse 13 through 16, people, what you have is out with the old and in with the new. They say the old foolish man needs to leave. He's yesterday's news. What we need is somebody young to come in, somebody innovative to come in and freshen things up. So the young guy comes in, takes over. People love him. He's the best thing to come along in ages. And then he, he is serving for a while, and he becomes the old guy who lets his kingdom go into poverty. And the masses that willingly supported him for a while now saying, we need to get somebody younger in here, somebody who can change the direction. And the younger man comes along, and there's no end to all the people who had the job before, and the people who's going to take the job after don't care that you're gone, and they'll probably be happy about it. That is his point. It's lonely, lonely at the top, as Alistair Begg said about this passage. It's lonely at the top. You know, you work your whole life for a company that, that doesn't care if you live or die. I worked at places where people had died while I was working there, and, we, and the company mourned them. They let everybody go to the funeral. And you know what they did the next day? They put an ad in the paper to find a replacement. That, that's what happens. And you work and you work and you work your way up to the top and then whenever you leave, they'll find somebody else to take your spot and life will go on. The world of politics, the same way. John F. Kennedy was shot on the way back to Washington. They had somebody take his place that quick. This world is not fair. There's injustice. It's crooked. There's death. Loneliness, oppression, anxiety, stress. But this is what I want you to consider. Don't expect this life to give you satisfaction. It can't. Nothing in it can. No one in it can. Don't ask this world to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. Don't become cynical. Understand the world wasn't meant to give you that. It wasn't meant, even before the fall, it wasn't meant to satisfy the longings of your soul. You were meant to worship God. And in this fallen world, you can enjoy what God has given you. We don't have to watch the news and look at everything, how sorry everything is, and get depressed and sorrowful, but we can enjoy what God has given us. Understand that this world is broken, and it's crooked and can't be straightened. We can live in a world where we know we're going to die but not fear death. We can live in a world that has injustice and know that we have a comforter and a judge who will make things right. We can live and not fear poverty. We can live and not fear of missing out on things because we have all things in Christ and know that one hand with quietness of the soul and spirit is better than two full hands full of trouble. We can spend money. We can spend and be spent for others' sake because we have the kingdom of God. We can be poor and know that we can be blessed. We can mourn and know that we'll be comforted. We can be content and patient, waiting on the Lord to come and set things right. 
And we can know that we'll never, ever be alone for the Lord Jesus has promised that he will always be with us. So put the new segments in the right perspective. God made everything not for us to find our satisfaction in them, but for us to enjoy him forever and worship him.